You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. Richard Boss spent so much of his time in city spaces as well, finding, just finding the life everywhere. So I think anywhere that you read his writing will be the perfect place. As I encountered him, um, our lives had very similar trajectories. He's 10 years older, uh, he, he, 10 years older than, than uh, I was. I'm gonna stop my video and you'll just have me. There we go. So yeah, so he was 10 years older than I am, but we both hail from Northwestern Ontario. Uh, my family, my father's family is from uh, the Sioux Lookout area. He was from north of Kenora. We were both raised in white families. My mom, um, my mom raised us, raised me with her, um, you know, with her family down here in Niagara. Uh, he was also raised in, in an adopted family in St. Catharines, um, where uh, he lived in St. Catharines for a number of years um, with them, which is where I grew up. I grew up in St. Catharines. And then even as these last books that I read where he's talking about moving from anger to possibility, that's been my own trajectory. So I don't begrudge. I'm still angry, still sarcastic. But um, I noticed in my own writings that I'm really moving more towards possibility. Although, you know, I don't disregard anybody's anger who's still there. So anyway, I just found him really, really interesting uh, in in a really deeply personal way. So I'm going to, you know, kind of have everybody introduce themselves. Um, so Robin, we'll start with you, if because uh, then Robin's going to head off and manage the chat room. So Robin, how did you encounter Richard Baugh's writing, and how did it change you? And then get like give a little introduction. Hi, I'm uh, Robin McBurney, and I'm a teacher, and I reside in Niagara Falls, so not too far from where Richard grew up. Um, and my book club actually picked up uh, and read Ragged Company a couple of years ago, and that was my first experience. And we all loved that book. And uh, I'm hoping that many of them can figure out how to join Twitch and uh, be uh, with us today. And um, I, how did it, how did it change me? Is that what you, how did I? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he's such a wonderful storyteller, you know, uh, and it was really interesting, you know, to see how um, he was able to explain about trauma and how, you, you know, uh, how complex that is in and the characters that he wrote were, were just really really beautiful, you know, and I think it helped us to, um, to maybe get a glimpse at what it might be like to, to have to deal with uh, so much, so much trauma and, and the idea that, um, you know, being pulled away from your land and from connections with, with the, with those who care about you, how that affects you and, and how, you know, just throwing money at a situation isn't going to actually do anything. It doesn't really change things. And just, uh, you know, I guess that hope that you were talking about, you know, that, you know, there are ways of, of um, trying to, trying to, I guess, I don't know, heal 
I guess it's a, a healing journey. I think that really was what I took away from, from the writing. So, and I'm really excited to be monitoring the chat today and uh, be getting put to work. So uh, I hope people have lots of questions and they, and they send them to us. And my bird is screaming right now. So I think I probably should stop now if you can hear him. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Robin. Daniel, um, I know you encountered Richard Baugh's writer because writing because of me. So <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the um, the way I dragged you into it? <laughs> yeah, um, Nimanaya, Nyocha Daniel Delgado, I'm I'm Daniel Delgado. I'm uh, Quechua and Jewish. Um, and yeah, I, uh, Patty contacted me and said, um, what do you know about this author's writing? And I said, nothing. And <laughs> she said, would you like to read some and be on the panel? And I said, sure, that sounds great. Um, so I, I, uh, I just tried to read a little bit widely in the time that I had. And I, um, I got a few out of the library. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I still feel very new to, uh, to, um, his writing, I think that um, the one that really that really hit me, um, uh, I, all of them, all of them affected me. Um, I guess there were two that really. Uh, uh, one, the first one I picked up was him standing because I saw his fantasy, and I was a fantasy writer, and I was like, "Cool, right? He's he's got something genre. I'll start there." Um, and uh, really, from a genre standpoint, it was a fascinating book, and I really uh, I really enjoyed it um, uh, because he really. Um, Twisted a lot of uh, a lot of pulp pulp fantasy tropes in a way I found really enjoyable. Um, uh, but the one that, that really sort of hit me on a really deep level was for Joshua, which I uh, um, picked up. I have a I have a six year old daughter. Um, I read this book um, and I immediately, as soon as I finished, I immediately put it in my wife's hands and I said, "You have to read this book." Um, and just uh, from the introduction, uh, when he starts out talking about this um, this empty feeling inside. Uh, that doesn't go away no matter what you do and and I was like oh wow like I, I never would have thought to describe myself that way but you're describing me and so that um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely still still thinking a lot about that but I think that's where um, uh, a lot of what resonated for me the most in the things I read is his his writing about that feeling of there's just something missing and there's something that you need to find um, and it's not necessarily what you think it is at first. Thank you, Daniel. I think that's that's true. The the way his capacity to describe the things that you're feeling that was kind of what I find over and over again is I I just really felt felt that connection and it, it was just really powerful stuff. Uh, Sheila. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm joining you today from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Snonema First Nation uh, on the west coast of what we call Canada. And I'm very honored to be with you. I'm I'm already so moved um, by what I've heard. And uh, Richard was well, if uh, you, you may not know me, it's possible. I don't even know myself. That was something Richard taught me. I really didn't. And that was my, my life's work is to try to get to know myself. But um, I've worked at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC Radio, for 40 years. And um, very recently, a 
publicist added an extra zero. So 400 years at CBC Radio. Uh, and in those 400 years, I got to speak to Richard a lot. And the first time was in 1994 when Keeper and Me came out. And he came into my studio and I'd never heard his name, Richard Ba's name, said out loud, his last name. And I introduced him, I'm going along talking about the book, and now here's the author, Richard Wagamese, like it was Italian. And luckily he didn't walk out of the studio, he just said, it's actually Wagamazing. And he had a really lovely, <laughs> punny sense of humor. And I, I just actually listened to that interview uh, a few days ago, and it was, it was so powerful. Um, and I realized Richard was one of the first people talking about what it was like to be an intergenerational survivor, talking about living with PTSD and not being someone who'd just come back from a war, but the, the tra trauma that was the half-life of trauma that was given to him through his parents, through his grandparents' experience. And um, it's hard for me to, to actually say what, what book has left its greatest impression. Uh, Daniel, I haven't read the one that, uh, that you just spoke about because I want to know there's always one more book by Richard. And, um, but I think when I, as I read them, I see that there's always a search for home and always a search for belonging and connectedness. And in his last novel, uh, The Unfinished Starlight, I think there was a search for stillness as well. And especially, it really shows itself in the character of Winnie, who's the little girl. And she and her mother have been fleeing a horribly violent relationship. And what Winnie really wants is just to be quiet and still. And I think Richard, Richard Baugh wanted that as well. He wanted home. He really wanted to be back in the arms of his community in Ontario. That's when he felt most himself, most full, I guess. So I'll stop there for now. Thank you. Those are lovely recollections. And yes, yeah, Starlight was just such a beautiful book. It was just just so beautiful. And um, it was it, but he, with him running with the elk. Yeah, that scene yeah. where he's running, running with the elk through the mountains is just, you know, to be able to immerse himself. And I think that was something and maybe that was part of his power in connecting with everybody, you know, the, you know, his capacity to connect with us is his capacity, that capacity to immerse. And, and sometimes I think that's related to that rootlessness, because as you're constantly searching for home, you're immersing yourself in the places you are and trying to find, you know, trying to, trying to find yourself in that place. And then, you know, of course he, his writing is just so infused with that. Uh, Janessa. Hey all, so yeah, I'm Janessa and I also live in Niagara, um, close to Patty and Robin. And I, I actually first sort of, um, well, it's kind of long. Well, it's not really that long of a story, but I first encountered um, Richard Baugh when one of my old co-workers um, partners actually let me borrow a couple of books 
And um, his book, Embers, was one of the books that she actually ended up giving me. And um, this was like right around the time that I like met Patty too. I was like going through this whole thing, um, trying to bring like a small group in to like learn a little bit more about uh, indigenous peoples in Canada and uh, ended up meeting Patty on Twitter. So, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, Embers is actually the first book that I read by uh, Richard Baugh. And I remember I read like the, the forward, of, or I, I guess it's called a forward, but the, the first part that he wrote before um, you get into the book and he was talking about how he had this morning ritual where he'd set a couple books out on a table and would sit quietly and like, just like breathe in the smell of some medicines and stuff. And then, um, and it just sounded so um, peaceful. I'm sure it wasn't always, but it sounded so peaceful. And I actually started incorporating uh, his book Embers into like my morning routine, um, which was pretty solid for about a couple of months and then it sort of tapered off, <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to get there again. And Honestly, I, I remember when I was first given this book, I was like, oh, is it going to be one of those like really cheesy like books with all these like quotes and pretty pictures and stuff. But it was so much more than that. He has so much to offer. And then um, when Patty posted the, the book list for for the year for Ambe um, and like had a whole month dedicated to uh, Richard Ba, I was like, OK, I have to read. I have to read more. So I picked up Starlight and um read that one, finished that one. And it was so beautiful. It was one of those books where you read it and it just feels like it resonates so, so deeply in you and draws out all of these emotions that you didn't really know that you like had tucked inside of you. And just the, I don't know what it is, but the way that he writes, it brings everything to life. And even the most, like what, what we might consider the most like mundane, like scene is just so, um, it really pulls you in. So I was very sad when that one was over and it was mildly like a little bit unresolved. Oh, anyway, um, and now I'm reading for Joshua and I'm very excited after Daniel said it was so good. Uh, I've only read the like uh, the the first bit and then the first chapter, but I'm excited for the rest of it. Thank you, Janessa. Uh, Dalton. Bonjour, everyone. My name is Dalton Walker. I come from you from the traditional homelands of the Ottoman Peeposh in what is known as Phoenix, Arizona. I'm from the Red Lake Nation in Northern Minnesota. And I have lived all across any country from New York City to Omaha to Phoenix. I'm a journalist and a lifelong learner. Currently, I'm the deputy managing editor at Indian Country Today, a digital news platform. My experiences include working with tribal news media and daily newspapers. Miigwech for having me and I look forward to our discussion. Per Patty's question, I'm a big fan of storytelling, basically what I, why, the reason what I do today, but especially Ojibwe storytelling like Richard and Louise Erdrich when Patty reached out to me initially about this discussion, I was hesitant and I didn't think I would probably be the best one because my reading of Richard's work was limited. But, and now my research, just looking at all the 
kind words and all the great stories about Richard and his life and his storytelling. It just blew my mind. And now I really look forward to reading more of Richard's work and just having a chance to um, just eat up his his books. Um, I've been doing a little bit of reading of Indian Horse. I haven't watched the movie, so I can't compare. But just initially, I'm already I'm already hooked. And um, again, thanks for having me. Thank you, Dalton. Okay, uh, we're gonna actually gonna stick with with you, Dalton. And the recently, you know, we've had. The, the 215 children, their remains were found in Kamloops. I know in the U.S., um, Carlisle Indian School also has um, marked and unmarked graves, as well as other boarding schools throughout the U.S. And every Native person has a story. We all have a story that connects us to these things. Richard Baugh wrote his wrote them down, but we've all got them, right? I've got, you know, my father went to a day school. My uncles went to uh, Pelican Lake Residential School. My mother taught in uh, um, Umfreyville, which is, was a little teeny tiny town outside of Sioux Lookout, where most of the people were from Laxville First Nation. And she taught there during the last few years of Pelican Lake Residential School. So she was there right around the same time as thing, as the residential schools were starting to wind down. Um, and I like to remind people that in Canada, the Fresh Prince left Bel Air before the last residential school closed. That's how, that's how recent this is. So every Native person and everybody who's connected to Native people, because you know, my husband, through me, has, has these stories, of these connections to residential school. So Dalton, in your... You know, so much of Richard Baugh's writing is tied directly and indirectly to his own experience. So in your reading, in your journalism, can you talk a little bit about that maybe in the U.S.? Um, because I think um, number of, most of us are in Canada except for uh, Daniel. Um, you know, maybe give a little bit uh, of that connection that you, that you have, whether it's through journalism or personal story. Sure. Well... I believe in the States, they had around 350 boarding schools, residential schools at one time. And that's a lot. And there's a lot of unmarked cemeteries. There's a lot of marked cemeteries. And just recently, the federal government announced that there were that they're going to return remains of 10 children at Carlisle in Pennsylvania. And that's, and that's just sad to think about because those are 10 young people that we just don't know who never had a chance. So that type of thing really, really affects me and hits me even as a journalist because my ancestors, my grandparents were all products of boarding schools. So you just, it just pains me to know that some kids didn't come back, never made it home. So the U.S. announcing recently that they were going to return the remains of the 10 is a nice start, but how many more are out there? And through journalism, that's a question we have to find. At any country today, one of our reporters, um, who happens to be a Ojibwe, she has a wealth of experience covering the topic. And when we heard about the news coming out of British Columbia, she was quick to try to find some type of perspective or angle how this is, is the same 
even a little different down here. And she quickly just rehashed information that most people already know. But this is important stuff that doesn't get told in our schools and is forgotten or just overlooked. So as a journalist, we want to tell these stories. Um, it's really heartbreaking when you see the even the numbers 215 right now. And I know there's even mm -hmm. more, a lot more out there. And then it's even, it's just hard to think about how many are just around the states with all the boarding schools scattered, either bulldozed over or just a museum or something. It's just painful to think about that part. So as a journalist, that's definitely on my mind. We try to tell these stories, our work with reporters looking to tell these stories. As an Ojibwe man, this is pretty sad. I'm a father of a 13 year old and I can't imagine what our ancestors went through where their children were pulled away from them without consent or just stolen. So that's pretty, pretty sad to think about. But just hearing the news was, was rough. And now, now it's my job, it's my reporter's job to make sure we tell those stories. Mm -hmm. I was thinking today about, um, you know, the parents who didn't know, right? Like if the kids were old enough to run away, because these, you know, some of these kids just never came home and their parents were never told anything about what happened and so now when as they're being found and identified you know that feeling of you'd always thought maybe they were just out there somewhere and finding out that they're not and how much you know how much fresh grief there, there's going to be and how we you know we really need to be able to support our communities you know support our communities as they go through this Sheila you were a witness um for the TRC yeah were you not? You were a witness. Could you talk yes. a little bit about that experience? Yeah, um, it was uh, an incredible honor. Um, I I was asked to be a witness to the work of the TRC and uh, the statements of survivors from 2011 until the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, wrapped up in uh, the, at the end of 2015, and. Um, I committed to telling the truth. Um, I committed to standing for the truth of what I heard from the survivors. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission would not have even come into existence had it not been for the courage and the, and the strength and the dignity of survivors demanding that this happen. And what was revolutionary about this commission was that the survivors gave their statements in public so that people could come and they could also be witness. If you were in any of those gatherings, you were a witness as well. And um, I have found a occasion to stand up and say uh, as recently as, you know, about a week ago when I really felt I had to say something um, to the Prime Minister. I mean, I didn't get an audience with him or anything like that, but on, <laughs> on social media, um, he was there in the room when the fourth volume of the TRC report, this one, all 266 pages of it, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials, 
a volume that when the TRC started off, they didn't even think they would be writing. And it talks about the numbers. It talks about how well, at that point they thought maybe 3,200 upwards to about 6,000. Murray Sinclair, the chair of the TRC, and also my cousin. But I think as Janessa said at some point, that's another story. Um, he's, uh, well, he said maybe it, it may be as high as 15 to 25,000 uh, unmarked graves. And so, um, but he, he described it as news when he heard it. And it, it wasn't news. This was talked about that day in December of 2015. And he made a promise to make sure that the voices of survivors were heard, that that he and the government of Canada would lift the burden from their shoulders. And that hasn't happened. That has not mm -hmm. happened. And um, I, I will say this, this experience of witnessing um, was something that Richard really held my, Richard Ba really held my hand through. Um, I, it was hard. It was, but wow, you know, you, you learn the, the real story of this country and how it was built on stealing and taking, taking lives, cultures, languages, uh, ways of knowing and being away from the people who were here. And, um, yeah, it changed, it changed my life, uh, in every way to the point where, um, I wanted to make sure that on our program, um, I'm, I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Greater Victoria, but I wanted to make sure that Indigenous voices were really heard on the national network, that that was really going to be important. And to hear the stories of survivors and intergenerational survivors through novels, through nonfiction. I'm sorry, this is becoming a really long answer, but um, it was just really critical to wake this country up. And it's interesting. Uh, and tragic, but I'll say the 215 little ones, I think, have really woken this country up. I think they've really, really said, hey, you know, you can't, you can't ignore this. You can't ignore us. And yeah, we, we need to make sure we say the names, we find the names, we reconnect them with their families. And um, as, as a witness, I, I want to make sure that, you know, if you stand for the truth that you heard, you want to make sure that this, this happens. You want to make sure that the promises are honored. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think, I think you're right. I think, I think we're in another moment of possibility. I don't think, I mean, this isn't the first and it's not going to be the last, right, of, of these moments of possibility. No. These I don't know, you know, things come together at certain points as we kind of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more and more of, of time and as cyclical as opposed to linear. And as we come past these moments again and again, we have these opportunities and we learn from the previous ones. We bring something forward into the current ones. And I was just so happy that after, you know, kind of the, the, the tragedy and the sadness of, of three weeks ago and how it's been unfolding 
you know, over the last three weeks that we were going to be talking about Richard Baugh's writing, that I would be immersing myself in his writing here in this national park. I spent two days reading his books and it was just healing. It was just such good medicine. Right. And he talks about medicine being that thing that connects us and ceremony reminds us. And it was just such a perfect thing for me to be reading um, right now. So Daniel, you're raising children in diaspora far from home and looking at you know what's happened with the residential schools and reading Richard Baugh's writings and what are what are your reflections as you know you watch this unfold and think about your your own life and your own human history so I uh when I originally uh, got the books together that I was planning to read, I didn't get Indian Horse. Um, and then after the news, I, I got it out of the library um, and I, I opened it up and I couldn't, I couldn't read it. I, I read the first chapter. It was beautiful. I was so good. I was like, this book is incredibly written. And then I got to the part where they started talking about the school and I just, I, I couldn't go on, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, some, some other time. Um, it, it is right. I think, you know, for, a lot of us who have small children, you know, I have a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old and the youngest one that they found uh, the first night was three. And just, you know, the, the thought of that, like, uh, why is a three-year-old not, you know, with their with their family, right? Um, um, I mean, I think that one of the things that uh, that I, I reflect on with, with both, um, I, feel, I feel weird, uh, first naming him, but I, I honestly keep forgetting how to pronounce his last name, which is why I keep saying him. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, you know, with, with his writing and also with the, the residential schools from Canada, right? I live in, I live in Arizona. Um, my people's traditional lands are in, in Peru. Um, so this is at a distance and yet there's always these, these points of commonality. And I think that that, um, that experience of, uh, uh, having our children stolen and our of of you know being re-educated into a different culture and, and being told that that our cultures were shameful and were bad and and the sort of you know personal and collective histories of language loss um forced language loss like all of those things are in in my family as well and i think that um it just uh i don't know i don't know that i have anything to say about it but i think that um it definitely was all, all on my mind a lot when I was reading, and as I said, you know, um, when he writes in in uh, for Joshua about that feeling of of just um, there's something missing and there's something empty inside, it, it started me thinking about like where does that where does that come from? Um, where are the places that we've been disconnected from our people, like within our family histories, um, and and you know the, the thing, all the news about the schools just feels very much on that exact topic right as to the ways that colonizers the tools that colonizers have used to forcibly disconnect us from our people and and thus from ourselves you know so that's what i've been reflecting on as as i've been reading his work or what are the ways that you know in my family we've been disconnected and what does it mean as a as a parent right um because i guess that was your original question right i i uh have this sense right i want to when i was growing up like i was very I had a very strong connection to uh, our Pueblo um, at, in terms of uh, like what I was told in the family narrative, but like you, there would never anyone in our family say 
that we were indigenous because that was not a thing that you were going to be right it's like oh yeah you know my father grew up speaking quechua but not no 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 not an indian like that's right um and so uh so you know to to think about what do i tell my kids um to to make them proud of who they are but also with this weird feeling of inauthenticity right it's like i'm telling you things about yourself that my father would have never said to me about myself um it's you know questions yeah janessa I don't know. I was just thinking about um, that last thing that like one of the last things that Daniel was saying, just like ways that we've been disconnected. And I was thinking about that a little bit, like within my own um, family. So my mother and her family are Métis from um, my Penetang machine. And just thinking about how, um, I guess, in some ways, Christianity has sort of been weaponized a little bit and has been like the cause of disconnection in 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 my family and um now having both of my parents still going to church and just reconciling that is just anyway yeah and also just thinking about um you know what uh, Sheila was saying about the TRC and just like the, everybody like the prime minister being there and you know, hearing all of these um, recommendations and calls to action and everything like that, and then not really acting upon any or many of them, I think only what eight have been fulfilled. And thinking about like the 215 children, and I, I work at the, um, the Niagara Regional Native Center, which is like a friendship center here in the Niagara region. And I just remember when the announcement came, we had a fire from dawn until dusk on um, the Monday following. And um, Patty was actually there with a drum group singing. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. It was, it was sad. There were a lot of emotions that day. And then um, to show, I guess, out of respect, um, a lot of cities also lowered their flags to half mast. And so later on, after 215 hours had passed, um, some of the cities, you know, raised the flags again. And here in, in St. Catharines, where I actually am, um, City Hall and uh, the mayor invited, uh, invited people to come out um, for the flag raising. And just some of the, some of the people who spoke, I was just thinking about that. And it's, it just feels, I really hope this changes things, but but just based on like the legacy, it doesn't really, I don't know if anything is going to change. And I, Patty, or perhaps even my boss, Carl um, mentioned, you know, how much you were there, you were there, you knew, and you can't, you can't say, we don't know, we don't know. And, and then give us these like, you know, shows of like sadness and say, sorry, like the Pope's sorry, which isn't really a story and then not do anything about it. Like, what are you going to do with this information? How are you going to carry that forward? Like one of the themes that I find um, like Richard Ba really focuses on is like reckon reconciliation. Like he's very gracious and, and um, yeah. And I'm like, how are we going to um, as like settlers, as indigenous peoples, how are we going to reconcile this? Like how are colonizers going to actually, what are they going to do <sighs> anyway? Sorry, Patty. It's a little bit long and rambly. Well, that was perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I, 
I was just thinking the mayor had spoken at that event and he was just so hopeful and, you know, and then, and, you know, and I'll give this one some credit. He does, he does do some of the work. There's always, you know, there, there's always room for better, but that's true of me as well. Um, and then I got up there and, you know, and he said all of these great things and I had no complaints about anything he said. I think he was fully sincere. And then I got up and I just like, I'm tired, Canada. I'm tired of you being surprised. And I, was like, I just felt so mean getting up there and bringing, bringing those words. Our drum group was at a lot of events. We were also at a solidarity event. Um, with Palestine and then for the um, the Muslim family that was killed in London. And the journalist Robert Jago made a comment that he was driving home from the airport and saw the flags at half mast. And that was right after um, the murders in London. And he said, they can't even lower the flags for this family because they're already at half mast, you know, for these children. And just, he was just thinking how profoundly sad and Canadian that is. Like there's just so much there's just, there's just, there's just so much hiding beneath, hiding beneath that flag. So one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading his book, was re reading his, his fictions. So in the Schnabig cosmology, children choose their parents. And be so before they come to this world, they choose their parents. So my kids chose me. So whatever they want to complain about, this is, it's on them. Um, but when I first heard this teaching, it was at a camp for kids who were wards of the state. So these were crown wards. So in Canada, they're called crown wards. You know, they're, they're take, kids are taken away from their parents. And then there's a timeline within one or two years, depending on how old the child is, um, they get permanency. And that permanency is, of course, with families who aren't the, the ones they were born into. So these kids were now permanent wards of the crown, possibly available for adoption, but these were teenagers. So um, they were just gonna grow up in foster homes. So, the, so these kids who for various reasons can't be with their families had just gotten this teaching that they chose their families. And this wasn't the point of what this elder was teaching. So he didn't unpack it. He just skated right past um, what is a really difficult teaching to give to kids who aren't with their parents, kids who may have experienced abuse or trauma um, because you don't become a crown ward because your life has been so great. So later on, I asked a friend to help me reconcile this. Um, and she told me that choices were made based on things we knew then, based on the people we knew on the other side before this life happened to our parents. And so much of Richard's writings are about, Richard Baugh's writings are about that connection. You know, he talks about his parents. He talks about forgiving his parents. So I just kind of want to go around and you know, talk a little bit about that teaching, about what it means, you know, in the context of our own lives and in the context of his writings and kind of the way he wrestles through. Because as we read his books, we've watched him wrestle through in, in one drum, he talks about having forgiven his parents, but that's late, late in his life that he's, you know, that, that he came to that in the earlier books, he, he's clearly wrestling through that. It's not, it, it's a difficult teaching in a lot of ways. So I think uh, Sheila will go to you first. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really hard one for me personally, Patty. Um, because I, that's okay. I've, I, I have stepchildren, um, 
I, 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 I don't know you guys, but I'm just, because this is such a taboo, I feel I, I want to say it, though I've had two miscarriages, you know, long ago. And uh, what, this does come back to Richard now that I think about it. There was no ceremony for mm. these two children. Um, it was just like, oh, well, you know, too bad so sad on and on you go right mm -hmm. um and children choosing their parents i guess you know i do have these three lovely stepkids and they're great um but i guess it just sort of hits me hard that what does it mean when you lose a, a child but i will carry on because lots of people have but i think you know for richard one drum was written in 2011 it, it wasn't published, I know, until recently, but he was really struggling with forgiving his parents and forgiving his foster parents as well. And um, he, I think everybody knows this, and Richard was very, Richard Baugh was so open about uh, wrestling with uh, substance abuse and uh you know to go through the course of of alcoholics anonymous as he did a number of times he had to he had to try to forgive he and and that was that was a very big mountain for him to climb more like a mountain range really because mm -hmm. there were a lot of people who um who did him wrong and um but in the in the case of his parents he really came to understand that it it wasn't it wasn't their fault he didn't blame them it was the fact that he, you know he couldn't live the life that he was destined to live his destiny was interrupted by colonization his life was ended by colonization. Uh, I, I remember when, well, very clearly when he died, a lot of people, a lot of journalists um, called me and said, you know, well, how did he die? What was it? And uh, I, I said, that's actually the wrong, the wrong thing to say. You know, what, what, what matters is that he's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. But then I changed it to, no, colonization is what killed him. Um, his parents who had been living a very full and deeply spiritual life on the land when that changed everything changed for Richard and you know Daniel when you're talking about how um, you can't read past the first chapter of, of Indian Horse I'm, I've just looked at for Joshua again I don't even know if I can get past the first page because it talks about how you know, once there was a lonely little boy, he had no idea where he belonged in the world. And that was, that was Richard's loss because he lost his parents, because the children's aid took him away at the age of three. So children choosing their parents. It's such a beautiful teaching, Patty. Um, I really want to think about that some more and not think about it out loud so that I take up too much of, of the space here. <laughs> But it's such a beautiful thought. And I think that it is a teaching that would actually have given Richard a lot of peace. So, hmm. miigwech. And now I'm thinking 
about those little ones that you didn't have ceremony for and the choices yeah i don't know so 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 many of these podcasts and conversations i'm learning out loud and i'm thinking you know so thank you thank you for sharing that because now i'm thinking I'm thinking more about about that about that teaching. It is it's beautiful, but it's also it, it's complicated because some relations can't be restored. You know, some some relationships between parents and children, you know, can't be restored until we until we see them again. Uh, you know, on the other, you, you know, you know, however it oh. however it circles around, um, you know, and we see them again, and then and then we understand why we made the choices we did, and why they made the choices they did, in terms of, of, of choosing. Um, but wrestling through that in our lives, and thinking about, you know, thinking about that, I just in the context I heard it, it, it just sounded so hard. And then hearing you talk about it, it does sound really beautiful. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's a it's a big complicated teaching, uh, Dalton. What uh, what are you thinking about about children choosing their parents in in these colonial times? You know these colonial you know these colonial lives that that our children are choosing their way into, and and Richard Baugh's writings how they wrestle through that. That's really really powerful. You just sit and think about children choosing their parents um, when you just sit when you just think about that possibility is just mind-blowing when i think about that as who i am i kind of i i won i wonder why i um but i also know that it's because who i am those choices were made and if you put that in the thinking that same thinking down the line um i grew up on the reservation in um, northern Minnesota um, without my dad. My dad was, uh, he was Muskogee, but he traveled a lot. So I didn't even see him. I barely, barely knew him. Um, my mom mentions that I got my facial hair from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do, there is a part of him in me, even though I had basically a zero relationship with him but I try not to think about what I didn't have and more what I had I had two older siblings who guided me through their actions whether that was positive or maybe a not so positive way of growing up in their experiences and me not following certain paths and then all the credit goes to my mom who raised me on her own and I grew up to be the only one to um, receive a college degree out of my family. My grandpa and my grandma, my mom's parents, they were, they were just my second parents. Um, I have a lot of great memories just being with them, being around them, growing up with them, traveling with them and I'll have those forever so it's kind of fun to think about how we selecting our own parents at a time when maybe i was selecting for this challenge maybe it was a challenge 
knowing that these type of type of life I had to experience to thrive and become who I am today. Um, I don't make it back home too often, but home is always a part of me. Um, thanks to social media, I can visually see a lot of things from my friends and relatives back home of what's happening. And you still get the, you still get a piece of that and you get those memories kind of come flying back. So just being a son, a grandson, a father, like that means, that means so much more. And I, I, I feel that in myself. I don't want to say more than other people, but that's really a part of me. And these teachings, like, they're just beautiful when you think about, think about the stories that we've been told, whether that's creation stories, our stories that happened a couple weeks ago. Like, it's just awesome to hear. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm still a little, a little new with Richard's work, but just looking at the brief research I found, like, wow, this is this is somebody I'm gonna connect with. And I really look forward to learning more about him. I listened to a YouTube video of him reading a little bit of his book, um, Indian Horse, and the way he talked, his just telling that story, it just stopped. It just stopped me. Like, I usually have two or three things going on because I'm always trying to multitask. But just hearing his words and knowing who he was, I just had to stop and listen. Thank you, Dalton. Uh, Daniel, be thinking about your girls choosing you uh -huh. and kind of wrestling through these hard choices as an adult too. Yeah, I mean, I think about, I'm thinking about the book Medicine Walk, um, which, uh, you know, when this question of, right, choosing choosing your parents and, and um, I, I read that book as, as very much like a, a question about uh, what, does uh what does fatherhood mean right and what does um also is a sort of question about, like what does masculinity mean like a, a sort of post-colonial masculinity like what is what are what are these elements of like manhood that are associated with how we're supposed to be and what are the ones that are kind of broken right um i think that um i think that that that's you know that's that this big question hangs over that entire book right it's like what he the the protagonist of that book is learning about his father's life, his father who's never been there at all, right? And and there's this sort of Im implicit question in the book is like, why? Like, does this matter? Right? Does this person matter to me when I have this other person who raised me? Like, but it does because who we are and where we come from matters. It always matters. And I I think again, you know, what what Sheila mentioned that um, uh, Richard Bass said about uh, who he was meant to be uh, and how how being taken into the, the foster system and adopted into a settler family disrupted that because they didn't, he writes about that in, in For Joshua Tree, they didn't want him to be, he says, he, he says, you know, no matter how much they tried, they, they could never, they thought they would help me by making me like them, but they couldn't because I was meant to be an Ojibwe man. That's, that's just what I was put on this earth to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking about that in reflection of this question of children choosing their parents and maybe 
it's not so much that, um, you know, before we're born, we're choosing, uh, I don't know, we're like, uh, it's not like necessarily that we're, we're choosing like the best product off of the aisle in a store or something, right? We're like, which is the one that's got the best reviews that's really going to get me everything I want. Um, it's more like we're choosing our work in life, you know, like we have, all of us are here and we all have uh, a work a work that we're here to do. And, and part of that work is to be who we are. And, and you know, the, the families that we come from so much determines what our work in life is going to be. Um, and so maybe it's not so much that we're trying to get the best deal. Um, maybe there's something that we know, right, about what we're supposed to do uh, that, that we don't necessarily have access to when we're, we're here in sort of this world. I really like that. We're cho choosing the work, the work that we're going to do because that's, yeah, I really like that. I'm, I'm going to have to think more about that. I really, I really like that framing. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Janessa. I was thinking, well, so I don't have any, I don't have children, <laughs> um, but I was, I was thinking a little bit about, um, in for Joshua, in um, the beginning few pages, how he's talking about his um, life with his parents and sort of what he can remember from it. And then how one day that was just over and how he didn't know, he didn't know a reason for a while. And I was like, oh, like that is, that must be, I, I can't imagine, you know, living with that. And so when Sheila was talking about how for Richard Baugh, it was like, it was a mountain that he sort of had to, you know, climb to, I guess, forgive and reconcile um, his parents. And that was a really long journey for him. I was like, man, I don't know if anything that I have to say can even come close to that. <laughs> um, but I was thinking a little bit, I guess, just um, as for, for, with my parents, just, you know, what that, what that means, what that teaching means for me. And, um, yeah, how that looks, you know, I, I don't really have any similar experiences to what um, Richard has gone through, but I'm just thinking about, you know, I guess I really liked, sorry, I'm kind of like going off all over the place a little bit here, but I really liked when Sheila was like, it wasn't, um, it was colonization. It, I liked how it wasn't like the, the parents as individuals, it was sort of what has, what has happened to them. It wasn't, and what had happened to Richard. And I was thinking about that in, um, for, for my own parents and like what had happened to them to bring me into this world and to like sort of help form me as like a person and their experiences and stuff and how they have been shaped by colonization or for like my dad being shaped by just like, I guess, toxic masculinity or like these expectations placed on him um, just through work and everything and how that gets passed on and what it's going to look like for me to pass or what I'm going to be passing on to my children and um, as, they, as they choose me and like generations from now, what that's going to look like. And it's just like this whole web of like interconnectedness. And I don't really have like a super good answer, but I'm just sort of, this is just what I've been thinking about when everyone's been talking. So thank you all for sharing all those great things. Well, I think that web of connectedness was also very much part of Richard Baugh's writings. Because I can't, you know, through, through one native life and one drum and, and you know, starlight and, and all the others, it's all about those 
webs of connections, you know, it's the, so it's the work that he's here to do, you know, his existence as a man, as an Ojibwe, as a human being, um, you know, it's all, uh, it's all of those things and all the way, all of those things are connected together. So we actually, there is a question from the chat that kind of feeds into the next question that I wanted to get into. Um, because something else that was a very big part of his book and very big part of his healing was connection to the land. He talks about, you know, almost every book he's talking about that, you know, being connected to the land, connected to place. But also in, um, in One Native Life, he talks about raising the flag for Canada and talking, talks about loving this country. And right now, you know, Cancel Canada Day has been, you know, I don't think it's trending on Twitter anymore, but for a while it was. And, you know, and people are talking about canceling, Can you know, canceling Canada Day. So in um, once, so the question from the chat, um, which I'll, I'll put out uh, to the, to you guys is in one story, one song, he seems to strongly connect the future of Indigenous peoples in Canada with Canadian neighbours, uh, which kind of goes along with what he'd said in One Native Life about this connection, and we are all related. So what do the panelists think of his vision of reconciliation and his place in Canada? And if this vision has changed over time, um, would Richard want to cancel Canada Day? <laughs> So does anybody want to go first or shall I just pick you? I could take a Dalton, a flyer. let's start with oh, you. Sorry. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sheila. No, it's okay. Dalton, I, I defer. No, I was just picking random. So go ahead. Sheila, please go. You're good. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, you know, the word Canada... Um, for Richard was really so much back to its indigenous roots of Ganada, our home, our home. So I think, again, what he was looking for in a better, a new relationship with Canada was about home again. Would he want to cancel Canada Day? I think, you know, who can say really, Patty, but I think he would be so forgive me, <laughs> so pissed off right now. Um, if you read uh, like back into his, his, I think it was his very first book called The Terrible Summer, which is a collection of his columns as a journalist when he was writing about Oka and also covering um, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People was just about to come up. All of these issues were there back in the early 90s, you know, and not resolved even now. And I think Richard, even Richard Baugh might have run out of patience here. But I also think he really loved this land. He loved this land. And he, you know, the first line of our very bellicose national anthem, Oh Canada, our home and native land, he always said on native land. And, and yeah, like, can we at least change that? Um, but uh, as far as canceling Canada Day, I think, you know, it's, it's like Father's Day. Is it like, it's, it's a random day where we celebrate, we celebrate what this country, how this country came to be. I think at this point, it might not have been the thing he would want to do. I think he would choose this day as a day to honor 
the children who didn't come home, the children who've been impacted by colonization, and but still love the idea of our home, this land, our home. I also, um, I'm, I'm probably thinking of um, not one story, one song, but um, the other book of essays, and I can't remember the name right now, but how he said, you know, reconciliation begins when we lean over the fence and, and talk to our neighbor. Uh, and just by very simply saying, hey, how are you? Um, it's hard not to respond. But he then modified that a little bit later to say it would be way better if they responded in Ojibwe, like my language. And I really love that. So he he found such grounding in his language and in the Ojibwe language. And um, again, I would go back to the meaning he put into Canada as coming from Canada. Mm hmm. Daniel, when we first talked, because um, Daniel's a, a past guest on the podcast, and when we first talked, uh, you had talked about your connection and how you and how you find connection in this place, even though you're a long way from home. Can you talk a little bit, because we're talking a little bit about land, you, you know, kind of in how Richard Baugh found, you know, kind of healing and connection in land. And, you know, I... Can you talk a little bit about that for yourself as well? Because I know that's what we have talked about in the past. Yeah, and it was a thing that I was thinking about as I was reading uh, Medicine Walk in particular, right? Because Medicine Walk takes place in BC and the main characters are Ojibwe, so they're not in their in their native homelands. And yet this this idea of connection to the land is so central, right? now. So, so I, you know, think about myself as we do when we read books. Um, and... Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's, it, you know, I think there's a sense in which like the land is the land, right? Like there's, a, it's so important to connect with, with the land where we live. Like if we don't, I don't know, what are we? Like, what are we even doing? Like we're, you know, we're not fully alive, right? Um, and yet there's this, there's this type of connection that, that at least I feel like that we get only with our our home, our, our, our place where we're really we're really from. And I, you know, I, I moved around a lot growing up. Um, but you know, for, for me, like there's, you know, uh, I, I say often that I ended up in Tucson because it's a uh, it's got elements of all the places that I lived. <laughs> it's it's got a, a lot of spillover culture from Latin America. It's got these very tropical thunderstorms. It's got this very North American uh, uh, landscape. You know, it, it's dry lands. All my my ancestors are from dry lands. So, um, but like, there's nothing like the Andes. There's just you know, it's there's for me like being in in the Andes is this like nowhere else on earth. Um, and it's been like that since my first visit when I was ten years old um, because we couldn't go before that because war and genocide um and um and and yet i feel very very strongly connected here and and you know part of the way that i connect is i uh, as i talked about when i was on the podcast is i i farm uh here in our yard and i grow uh i grow you know crops that grow here um that are are you know from native peoples here but there are crops too right it's corn and it's it's squash uh, and it's 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 the crops that, that my people still grow in our pueblo um, um, and I know that is with when I talk to my um, 
my kids about like connection with the land, like the question sort of comes up, right? It's like, okay, we're from there, but we live here. And like, we, they, they were born here. They feel strongly connected here. Um, and so especially my older daughter has this question, right? She's like, okay, so like, this is my home, but like what, like, but it's not our land. Like, what does that mean, right? Um, and so what I, what I sort of say to her, cause she's old enough for this. I say, well, this can be, uh, this can be our home, but we're guests um, because this is someone else's land and their history is here. Their entire history is here. And this is where they came from. Um, and our entire history is in our Pueblo. Like we go back forever there. Um, and that's where we came from. And we will always have this connection with that place. And if we're gonna be here, then we have to recognize that we're here where it's a different people that has that connection. Um, and I think that that, you know, uh, in regards to the question from the chat, I think that's what's so often missing from, um, uh, I don't know, a lot of like settler defensiveness in, in all countries that I see, you know, when indigenous people say, well, this is our land. I mean, like the very contentious election in Peru right now that is involving a lot of, uh, a lot of mostly like white and light-skinned mixed people in, in the big cities being just really terrified of someone from the Andes winning. Um, you know, we've got horrible violence in Palestine and, and there's these conversations going on and people say, well, you gotta give the land back. And then the settlers say, well, where are we gonna go? It's like, you don't need to go anywhere. You just need to behave yourselves. And like, you, you know, you just need to recognize that we're here and that we were here first and that like, it's our relationships, right, that set the, the you know, that should, that should set the parameters for, for how this runs. I mean, so that's, you know, my recent thinking and, and conversations I've been having with people and these topics in a lot of countries, you know, related to a lot of countries is that, you know, of course those relationships with settlers are important because there's just a lot of settlers in settler colonial countries and nobody's actually seriously saying, kick everybody out, right? It's, but, what are the relationships look like now? The relationships now are incredibly colonial. They're incredibly one-sided. They're incredibly violent for indigenous people. And that's, that's what we're, we're all constantly talking about, right? That that's, that's gotta stop. Otherwise yeah. reconciliation's a sham, right? There's no, that's not reconciliation. No, that's the, they make the rules and we get reconciled to it. <laughs> Dalton, sorry, we'll come back to you now. Cause you're also, you're Ojibwe, but you're also a long way from home, correct? Or am I mistaken? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm technically down the road from Daniel, but I'm, yeah, I don't even know how far away I'm from my, from my, from where I, from where I grew up. I, I know how to get there, but probably a thousand or so miles. Um, mm. but, but yeah, the home part is always tough. Daniel really, really explained it well with the land. Um, I, I admire his words. Earlier, they were mentioned that um, days being canceled. There are a lot of days that should be canceled, especially here in the states. Um, as a journalist, it's just it's just it's just tiring. You see this back and forth. It is always always a side. It's always me, 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 me among most people, most political leaders, this is my way, this is that way. So it often takes away from any type of, of, of what you would hope would be, 
be the of the of this land like it's not us it's not we it's me and i think that that would probably have to change it sounds like it's almost impossible to change but a couple of our panelists alluded to that regarding if that that change happens that change would be for the better and just looking at the how the pandemic affected affected us is a prime example how we're not very close to getting there getting there yet especially especially here Oh, Raven is here. Hi, Raven. Hi. I, I got the time wrong. I had seven locked in my brain and uh, then I decided to check the time zone. And so um, I thought, well, you know, you said 90 minutes, so I'll just jump right in. And here I am. Better late, better, better late than never. So, <laughs> so we'll go, we'll go right to you then. We're talking about uh, Richard connection with the land and with what land means in terms of healing and reconciliation and you know kind of the journey that the journeys that we've been on as individuals and as countries we've got Canada Day coming up and you've done a ton of research about this you know about the 60s scoop and about um you know and can you I guess I'm, I'm just going to give you the floor a little bit then to talk about your research, you know, into, you know, into these kids and into kind of the lives they've had and the power of the land in connect and reconnection. Sure. I'm more interested in talking about it in, in, in the context of Richard though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I uh, had the chance to, uh, to meet Richard in 1995. So that was, it, it's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, experience to be here because uh, Richard's in my life sort of parallel in lots of ways where we were about we were about the same age. I think he's a little, you know, maybe a couple of years younger than me. Um, but the experiences, you know, when it, Keeper and Me was one of the like, as soon as it came out, I jumped on it and I bought it and I devoured it and I shared it and I read it many times over the years. I haven't read probably in about, you know, 15 years now, but uh, it's still vivid in my mind because, uh, you know, he was so he was so raw and honest and funny and insightful. And uh, <laughs> all day I've been giggling about the scene where he, where he, you know, he, he meets us, he's in jail and he meets his family or he, he connects with his family again. And then, uh, you know, he's excited to go back to the community. And so, so he goes, but his identity is so messed up that he's, um, you know, he's taken on the identity of a, uh, of a black person. So he's got his hair all in a, in a, in an Afro and, um, you know, he, and he's wearing all this multicolored, this is, you know, of course, back in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, he's wearing these multicolored clothes and he gets out and he's like, <laughs> you know, he's trying to talk like a black person and, and, you know, everybody's so excited to see him. They sort of like, you know, water off a duck's back, but, but, you know, the way that he, the way that he shares that is, it's just so delightful. I mean, it was, it was part of, uh, I think the gift that he had to be able to share those kinds of stories, um, that are embarrassing. You know, we embarrassed ourselves so many times. Um, but what resonated about that for me was, I mean, I, I don't, I never pretended to be anything that I wasn't. I just didn't, uh, connect with my own indigenous culture. Uh, but I certainly, you know, uh, he provided a mirror to me, 
about the reality that wherever I go, people make up stories about who I am, and in particular, my, my ethnicity. And so, you know, when I've been to different countries, when I'm in Mexico, people start speaking Spanish to me. And when I'm in, uh, when I was in Hawaii one time, they just assumed I was Hawaiian and, uh, you know, and so on. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I think part of the experience of being so dislocated from who you are as an Indigenous person is that you, you're, you don't have any anchors for your identity. So, you know, when people present something, then sort of that's where you go. And, uh, but in you know, in terms of the land and connection to the land, um, you know, he discovered that that young, thankfully, because uh, it's such an essential part of our our recovery from the 60s scoop. And uh, and you see that, you know, all the way through his books. And uh, the two that I'm, I, I love the most are uh, Keeper and Me and Medicine Walk. And, you know, in, in both of those, he his connection to the land is so strong. Um, you know, he goes out uh, in Keeper and Me, he goes out and in ceremony and he doesn't really know what's what's going on or what he's supposed to do and in some ways the connection to the land just um the land connects with him as opposed to him you know sort of being aware of what's going on and eventually you know he's he starts to have these insights and and uh, starts to feel you know starts to feel what it what it means to have that connection and the knowledge and the wisdom and the teachings that you can get from just being still on the land um, and then you know in medicine walk uh, i i was just absolutely blown away by that book i remember i had to put it down after the first two pages because the way that he wrote he had developed so much as a writer that the way that he wrote he he had a way of crafting you know english words that we use every day but in a way that just brought everything to life i mean there's this you know in the first few pages he goes into this barn and and like you can smell the barn and you can hear the sounds and you can feel the like the temperature and you can and the animals and the you know the sounds the rustling of the animals and it's just it just was really really profound to me um and then the story you know again another story of dislocation and disconnection from from family for various you know obviously intergenerational issues and then this incredibly uh sacred journey that he is called to take uh, unwilling at first and probably you know mostly throughout he was he was pretty resentful throughout or the character was pretty resentful throughout uh, and it wasn't really till the end where he really really understood i think the depth of the, the the depth and the power of of that sacred journey and that you know in that whole that in and of itself really explains recovery i think for, for survivors I keep thinking about Jesse Thistle's uh, definition of homelessness, where he says that it's more than just the lack of a domicile. It's, it's disconnection from, from family, community, language, culture, teachings, ceremonies. And, uh, and you know, I think the one thing that might be missing is, is self. And, you know, that's what, that's what I think Richard articulated so well in his works is the journey home is is about a journey to you know who we are as indigenous people and uh and he was masterful at at sharing that so yeah i had a chance to meet him when he came to first nations university uh by way of janice akus who was my first uh literature instructor and uh and then he came and taught taught there and so 
I didn't actually connect with him after that, um, but I did, you know, we were Facebook friends fairly early on. And so I had a chance to sort of just watch him grow and change and, uh, you know, have trouble in his relationships, which is like, mm. <laughs> Richard, we're still in sync here. <laughs> and, you know, finding a, a, a his most recent partner, just finding an incredible love there and, uh, and support and nurturing and, um, and and again, you know, a lot of what he shared was was his time on the land, and uh, and I really admired that journey that that he took uh, in in his life. And you know, I feel so sad that he's gone because he was so gifted, and it would have been amazing to see where where his talents would have taken would have taken him, because he his story spoke to so many people, and. Uh, just in, a, in just a loving and and wonderful way and and you know the thing about artists is that they're just they're really our gifts they're gifts to the human race because even though you know he had this incredible talent he he suffered he still suffered throughout his life and and that's that's the greatest tragedy is that out of that suffering came this beautiful talent and i wish that we you know collectively could find a way to help you know, gifted people like that um, to to find a way to stay, you know, to stick around. Um, but maybe that's that's just part of what goes with being an incredible talent is that, um, you know, that's where the ins inspiration is. Yeah. So I have mm. some really fond memories of him and his his work. It's it's affected me. It's affected me profoundly. And I wish that I could uh, I wish that I could let him know. Mm. Well, and that kind of that that draws us really nicely into into uh, our final questions. Sadly, I'm um, you know kind of mindful uh, of everybody's time, and, and so what I want us to think about, and, and I'll just kind of go around uh, the circle again. We started off the conversation thinking about how we encountered uh, Richard Buzz writing and how it may have changed or impacted us, but as we move forward as we you know kind of continue into this next you know into into this next cycle you know cycle of time and, and we revisit his writings again and and they change us again for me what really came out in, in today as i was reading was he the ceremony the the breathing you know where he talks about um in one drum just sitting and breathing and i rush through my morning ceremonies i offer my tobacco i say my prayers i you know give a quick smudge and then it's drinking you know it's drinking coffee and on to my day and reading that that book here just really made me think of the need to to slow that down and to breathe and, and you know and, and to let that moment connect me with the land, connect me with possibility, connect me with, you, you know, with what could be. So uh, Dalton, I guess we'll, we'll go back to you. What, what will you carry forward? You know, maybe from something you heard in this conversation or something you read in one of his books recently. Well, even in our, our brief discussion, you could just feel the impact from his writing on each and every one of you and, that in itself is powerful. And I know that I have been missing out on a lot of good stuff. And now I look forward to taking it all in. 
but that and that's that's just the neat part about storytelling like there's they're there and and we're blessed that his writing is available for us to read and read again and i look forward to that Thank you, Dalton. Uh, Janessa? Oh, I feel like I have a lot of a lot of big thoughts, but the little one is sort of similar to what you were um, saying, Patty, not rushing through things. I feel like, especially while I was reading uh, Starlight, um, when the main the main character, Frank Starlight, is um, you know, taking Emmy and Winnie out on the land. Um, and teaching them to like slow down and see things the way that he does and this feeling of connectedness that they they get to by by doing this and I think finding ways to incorporate that into my own personal life um, would be wonderful and then just having that reflect back on like the people that I'm around and like the way that I journey through the world hopefully in in a good way because because of this um I feel like he it's kind of reflected in the way that Richard Baugh writes about Frank Starlight and just like how kind and gracious he is as a character and as a person you know bringing um Emmy and Winnie into his life so I I think that's something that I I would like to carry forward and yeah thank you Daniel um I'm also thinking about Starlight and the, the publisher's note at the end um, quotes an essay um, of his um, and, and he says, um, it's not in our imagined wholeness that we become art, it's in the celebration of our cracks. And I, I think that he, it's a theme that comes up over and over again, right? In the works that I've read and the works that I, I hear people talking about this idea that, you know, we're, we're very broken, right? And, uh, and, um, and yet it's not that we need to find some way to become just completely unbroken, but that actually there's this beauty in the brokenness and in the way that we're broken and what we do with that brokenness. Um, and that's a thing that I have been, that, that I think I'm just gonna keep thinking about um, from his writing. And as I, I leaving this very inspired to pick up a lot of the other books that I've, I've heard people talking about. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Raven? What are you going to carry forward in your life from Richard's work, Richard Baugh's work? Well, what, yeah, are, what are you I'm, carrying forward? Uh, oh, so much, so much. But, um, you know, I'm thinking about the question, um, you know, about, you know, it's another example where, where Richard, um, you know, reveals his human frailty. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for many, for many survive, for many adoptees, long-term foster kids, child welfare survivors, because we were acculturated in a in a you know, Western, white. For me, it was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I think it was for Richard as well. Uh, we really embodied, uh, you know, the competition and the individualism and the, I uh, got to get things done. Got to have an agenda. Got to get it. You know, got to get moving. Got to get the job done. And <laughs> it's a constant battle especially when you have reacculturated and you started to learn some of the teachings and you know the and and really acquired that connection to the land and and uh and some of the uh like the the, the different sort of way of being in the world temporally and uh you know so that 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 moment of 
of going hard on oneself around, oh, I, you know, I should be doing it this way. <laughs> it's funny in a way. It's funny because, because we all do that. <laughs> Whether we've been adopted or not, it's like, oh, we've got to do this better, right? Uh, and that's colonialism, right? Because that's that comes from a Christian, those are Christian strictures, or the Christian framework of, of uh, you know, if you don't do things right, then you're going to be, you know, smited or smoted or something. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> by lightning and uh, so it's so it's it's a little bit of an irony in a way too because um i know that what richard knew uh by the time he departed was that uh creator is very forgiving uh creator and uh you know they wait for us to pray they're eager for us to pray and if we do it fast that's okay <laughs> time mm -hmm. is not the same there as it is here it doesn't matter it's about intention and so uh yeah, I think that he was sort of poking a little bit of fun at at some of the things he, he was learning. Yeah, but, you know, I take so much away. I I just, you know, I think about all the images that he shared about just being on the land and and his his eternal optimism and love of of people, of of the land. And uh, yeah, that was really inspirational. You know, he was tenacious that way. And so I know that he's, I know he's in a good place. And I, I, am, I am reassured about that. Yeah. Thank you, Raven. Uh, Sheila, mm -hmm. we'll give you the last word, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what an honor to be with all of you. And uh, Raven, so nice to actually meet you off Facebook. And uh Thank you. Um, you've all taught me so much about about Richard, about my friend. And I, I think the, the thing that will stay with me, the, Janessa, you use the word gracious, and he really was so gracious. He was gracious about the possibility of Canada being better. He was gracious about the possibility about a return to harmony. But the thing that really always sticks with me and um, Dalton, you know, as, as a journalist, you're a listener and he writes so much about listening. This happens out in, in starlight when they go out on the land and he asks Emmy to just close her eyes and really think about that space between your brows and just stop and really, really listen. And listening runs through his books as well, his fiction, his nonfiction, and his poetry. And I think if <laughs> listening is what this country has to do, um, but I, he reminds me that listening and listen and silent are made up of exactly the same letters. And as an old dyslexic, I really like this, but silent and listen, you know, <laughs> just, just do that, just be quiet shut up and listen. This is something I've actually been told to do too. But I also want to say to to you and in Raven, when you said, you know, you, you wish you he hadn't gone, he I don't think he's gone, you know. And I, I just if I can just read you a little thing he wrote to me, when my dog Poppy died, okay, I was bereft. And it's this is about spirit. It's not about Poppy, but uh, he said she only ever knew joy and only ever expressed that a friend, an ally, a warmth on cold nights. She learned and gave enough and now continues on her marvelous journey of becoming more 
just as all creatures, even us, do. She returns to joy. You'll feel her in the rain, in the wind, in the bite of snow, and in deep, and, and you will feel her, sorry, in, in deep penetrating silence when you stand out on the land. So you might miss her terribly, but never ever be away from her. That's what spirit is all about. It never leaves us ever. So I I know connecting into his books, you feel that spirit. And I think if we if we just slow down enough and listen, we'll we'll feel him with us. Thank you for listening. Ambe streams live throughout 2021 on www.twitch.tv/pattywithay_wbk on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring, where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can find me on Twitter at g-i-n-d-a-a-n-i-s if you want to talk about the things you've heard. Thank you to Pearlie Papineau for her editing skills and Liz Barkley for the transcripts.